Today's podcast, our 14th, is brought to you by our podcast partner, Timor Awakening. Hello, I'm Patrick Hurd, Principal Consultant at Community Business Australia, and welcome to Seen and Heard, a podcast about communities and the events and issues that shape the people and organisation within those communities. My special guest today is Stuart Lumnus. Stuart has extensive experience in large, publicly listed ASX groups, not-for-profit organisations and government agencies. His primary focus has been within the not-for-profit sector, which is our interest within our conversation today. These areas have been allied health and health services, disability and disability accommodation, childcare, aged care, retirement living development, community housing, crisis accommodation, domestic violence accommodation and transitional support, property development, construction and project management. Very extensive background. He understands and has participated in all facets of property ownership and development, from master planning and initial feasibility analysis, development and construction, through to refurbishment and initiation of preventative maintenance programs to the sale of non-core assets. He combines his non-executive and committee appointments with a demanding executive career. He's a board member or committee member of no fewer than seven entities. The Sisters of St Joseph, Nazareth Care, Queensland Heritage Council, National Trust of Australia, Death Services Queensland, Bolton Clark, Brisbane Markets, the Property Council of Australia. Absolutely remarkable. Now let's introduce Stuart. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you, Patrick. Wow. Let's um, let's just take stock of that uh, introduction. And my first question... <laughs> Um, is how and how do you fit all that in your your board and committee commitments, your senior executive career, and I should also mention that Stuart also volunteers at his local fire service. Wow, how do you do that? I'm an early riser, so that helps. That's for me. First thing in the morning is the most productive time of the day for me to look oh, at complex documents. Right, 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 I'm right. at home, it's quiet, so that's when I normally read board papers and uh, focus on those sorts of things. I'm a list writer or a planner, so I don't know what sort of quadrant that puts me in, but <laughs> I always have a list, even at the weekends I have a list. Oh, is that right, even in your spare time? I do, yep. And also to, you know, I'm disciplined with my time management. Um, you just can't leave things to the last minute. So i Plan out my diary, so I've got meetings right now through to Christmas next year already. Wow. Um, and when my board papers or committee papers come in, you read them straight away and you have a time frame by which you've got to do them and then I make lots of notes on them and what have you. So, um, yeah, you can't just leave it to the last minute. You'll, you'll get snowballed. And the word discipline seems to come to mind when I, when I hear that description. Um, I do want to explore, you know, your executive career and your mm-hmm. non-executive career. Mm-hmm. But let's just start, you know, just with your current role. You mm-hmm. and you just tell us about that role and, and sure. what you're doing now. So I work for your town, which is a not-for-profit. Yep. It was previously known as the Old Boys Town. Uh-huh, it was yes. established in 1961 by the De La Salle brothers. Right. Uh, its whole focus is on helping young people in need and young families. So some of their activities are they run the kids helpline, oh, twenty four yeah, hour a yeah, day yeah, helpline. Yep. We run domestic violence refuges. Um, we deliver employment services. We have trade training centres. So my role there is I head up their corporate property portfolio, which is assets in Queensland, New South, Tasmania, and South Australia. And um, I'm supported by a, a wonderful property team. 
So um, in this executive career, and I, I gave an overview um, in our introduction, you know, you've moved from ASX companies, mm-hmm. you've moved into, you know, church and charitable, and now, you know, pretty significant not-for-profit organisations that you've mm-hmm. just outlined. Now, I always ask our guests, is that part of an overall strategy for you? How did it sort of unfold? I mean, it's an extraordinary path that you followed over a, you know, 40-plus year career so far. It makes me feel very old. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was emphasising the fact that, you know, there's a lot to happen in that time. I'm really only 14. It's just been a hard life. Um, it probably first started with my first not-for-profit board role when I was in my 30s, and that I was on the board of Diabetes Queensland. And I just thought and saw how someone with a commercial background and understanding could make a real difference, could change the culture of the organisation and the Ah, way it directs itself. So um, after the GFC, I deliberately sought out not-for-profits from an employment point of view that had what I'd call lazy balance sheets or uh, underutilised assets because I thought with my property knowledge, I could assist them in uh, optimising their their return from their assets. So, yeah, it was a deliberate path to head down the not-for-profits because I often felt the not-for-profits would sometimes struggle to attract people um, with the right skill set. But I think that's changed over the last 10 years. Yeah, The, mar- the market has matured and so have not-for-profits. Yeah, delighted to see. A couple of points I'll raise. When we started our, our business 15 years ago, we, we purposely call it Community Business Australia because we're dealing with community organisations. But where we wanted to help organisations is around their business acrement. And that's mm-hmm. really one of the key components that I think is tremendous. Yeah. Second thing, and I want to explore later, is is in your 30s thinking about that. That's quite extraordinary. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to think about being involved as a director of an organisation as well as your, your career. So I want to come back to that later on as well. Now let's let's talk about, uh, I saw this quote in your profile, uh, which said the only difference in working for a not-for-profit is it is not for dividend distribution. So yep. <laughs> just elaborate on what that means, and that might give us a bit more understanding mm-hmm. of, of you know what you bring to the not-for-profit sector. Often when I'm talking to people who are starting on their career to, to, to undertake a not-for-profit directorship, yep. often I'll say to them, you remember that from a legal and risk point of view, whether you're working as a voluntary director or you're a director of the National Bank and you're being remunerated, right. yeah, yeah. you've still got the same risk profile. Right. So um, the only real difference uh, between a not-for-profit and a for-profit is around tax regulations mm-hmm. and obviously that mission focus. So you've got the same solvency law regulations, the same corporate governance expectations and that whole growth of um, governance and requirements and community expectations around you know, gender equality and ESG principles will continue to flow on yep. to the, the not-for-profit. So I ultimately see uh, the not-for-profits and the for-profits being on a very, very level playing field in terms of the expectations on directors and really it'll only then be a taxation structure path. Obviously your not-for-profits can't raise equity and they're reliant on retained earnings so that's why I say it's not for dividend distribution. You, you can Some not-for-profits can borrow depending on their balance sheet structure but often they're just reliant on their retained earnings to grow their business. A different business model isn't it? It is a different business model but still the same principles in terms right. of corporate governance and, and risk. 
And I think that's a good message I want to send to our listeners as well. Mm. That, and as I talk to many boards around the country, and I know you're on many boards as well, about in the not-for-profit space thinking that you've got some additional protection or different to anybody else. Look, I've seen directors um, in not-for-profits whereby uh, you, you'll see a clause whereby the, the exposure per unit yes. per, is, is only $10. Ten, yeah. And they say, oh, well, I'm only exposed to $10. I say, no, 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 no. If you're in solvent trading, you're right at the pointy end. Correct. Um, and often they don't... Yeah, that's right. And often they don't understand that. Yes, I agree. So education is, is a key component, I think, in not-for-profit still. Now, um, we ask all our uh, guests, Stuart, around their views on leadership. Now, with his extensive career, particularly in executive and non-executive roles, I'm really interested in your views on leadership and particularly how that might have been shaped over the years. You know, you talked about your first significant roles in your 30s and mm-hmm. your board roles and how that might have evolved over time. And and then thirdly, in that long question, you know, who, who has or what has influenced you in that journey? Sure. I believe in a not-for-profit, um, in a leadership role, you've got to have a commercial head, but also a social heart. You've got to balance that up. You can't like be Good. you can't yeah. be totally ruthless, but you also can't be so accommodating that you sink the organisation. Because we do often talk about mission, don't mm. they, in those yeah. church and charitable groups? And look, you've got to believe in mission. You've got to overlay mission in everything that you do. Yes but you've still got to be profitable. You've still got to be business-focused. I think you also need to be inspirational with a vision so that if you're going to the market, and you know, often not-for-profits when they're employing staff are not paying market rates compared to a for-profit. Mm-hmm. There we are, the benefits. Um, so you need to then be, as a leader, I think inspirational, have a vision to be able to sell to people and explain to the yeah. people what you're doing and how you're going to change people's lives so that you can get them to be focusing and say, yes, I want to work for an organisation that really will make a difference, that it's not just a profit-driven organisation. I've heard a term used a lot in recent years, um, which is for-purpose organisations. Does that sit well with you? Yep, sure does. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's exactly the same, or social enterprise or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, it's all in the same, same category. In, in, in terms of your, your, your other question, Patrick, about um, what I'd call good examples or people who I've found uh, in a leadership capacity yeah. that uh, I have respect for, I often talk about um, you, know, you need someone who can, who can walk the talk. And a good example, I think, is Fred Hollows with what yeah. he did. And also another one is, is, Gary, uh, is Deacon Gary Stone, and he's the founder of Timor Awakening. Good. Let's just, just unpack that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're 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 our, our partner for this conversation. So tell us a bit more about Deacon um, Deacon Gary. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deacon Gary Stone and I first met when um, uh, I was working for the Catholic Archdiocese, and he was a deacon. Yep. Uh, he's come from a military background, as has his son. So uh, uh, they were right. officers, and he was a chaplain. And um, yeah, Gary's seen active duty. Um, I think Gary then obviously became extremely aware and concerned about your post-traumatic stress syndrome and what that was doing to to diggers when they returned. I know his son, his son will say this, his son suffered from that as well. So Gary and his son, and uh, it's now become quite a, a formidable group, um, established um, Timor Awakening about seven years ago. Since then, I think they've taken about 130 families on the journey back to Timor, when they're in Timor, they get involved with a holistic approach to dealing with the, uh, their, their demons. 
um, Gary will now say that everyone who's participated in that program with him and gone to Timor, there's not been one suicide. Amazing. Interestingly, our, our previous podcast interview was with uh, Dr Andrew Koo, who's a, a, a prominent psychiatrist mm-hmm. who specialises in PTSD. Yep. And he, it was a remarkable conversation a, a, around the incredible, unfortunate impacts of, of that trauma on individuals. Yep. So it's great to hear that there's a range of mm-hmm. opportunities for, uh, for those ex-military servicemen uh, to be able to... Uh, to, to go through those processes um, along the way. But th- not only that, obviously they seem to do a lot of engagement with the community over there as well. They have. They've built schools over there yeah. and houses. Um, they've been involved with providing um, yeah, sustenance packs to, to local families. So, yeah, they really try to, when they're over there, they try to embed themselves in the local community, given it's such a, you know, a, a very, very poor country. And, and so I picked up those couple of examples. What seemed to have inspired you is people that can walk talk mm-hmm. and in terms of has that shaped your leadership in terms of your roles yeah it, it, i think it's always important and i even said this to to our son all the time you've got to leave something on the table for the next person <laughs> and yeah so yeah, it, it has it, ha- it has driven me to uh, and with not-for-profits you really can make a difference yeah and look at at brisbane housing i used to say you know, we you know giving people secure housing you can change their lives. Correct. So yeah, with a lot of the not-for-profits that I've been involved with, yeah, they, they, um, they're life-changing for a lot of people, the outcomes. And now a quick word about our podcast partner, Timor Awakening. Timor Awakening is a program of renewal and rehabilitation for Australian and Timorese veterans founded in 2016. During the past seven years, the program has given 21 groups of up to 24 veterans a holistic health education program involving an immersion experience in Timor, seeking inspiration from the resilience of our World War II commandos fighting the Japanese and the Timorese guerrillas who fought the Indonesians. In addition, the veterans have been involved in distributing humanitarian aid to the poorest of the poor. With over 5,000 Timorese families having been personally given a subsistence package of rice, oil, eggs, seeds and medicines. Separately, the veterans have built a school for disadvantaged young adults on the south coast of Timor, with seven buildings constructed, residential accommodation for 80 students and a program teaching them English and life skills. It's called Veterans Education Training Scheme. Veterans have raised and donated $250,000 towards this program so far. In a country born out of trauma, hope and resilience, the peaceful, spiritual and breathtaking Timor Leste provides a backdrop for healing and renewal. The multitude of activities creates a bonded group that will remain connected through each other's journeys of healing and growth. The overarching theme of hope, forgiveness and purpose is a feature through dozens of activities. Despite a troubled and traumatic past, the Timorese awakening experience is testament to veterans that there is hope and with a purpose and support, a positive and healthy future is possible. Now, if you'd like to know more about the Timorese awakening, please visit their website at www.timoresewakening.com. So now, 
CBA, we work with uh, a broad range of CEOs in the not-for-profit sector, um, and we often find ourselves counselling them, supporting them, and uh, particularly CEOs, and looking for non, non-executive roles. So um, uh, I just wanted to uh, talk to you about this combination of mm-hmm. executive and non-executive roles that you've had. But often the people we're talking to, they're, they're starting quite late in their executive careers, sometimes you know, just before they're retiring. Mm-hmm. But you, as you mentioned earlier, started in your 30s. So how, how did you sort of successfully combine those two careers? Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in unpacking that because I think that's really great insight for others who might be thinking about the same direction. Yeah, look, I guess I didn't want to be cloistered in my views and being a one organisational focused person. So for me, I've approached boards as um, professional development. I learn about ah, the organisation. Right. Yep. I learn about, you know, they're, they're involved with their strategies uh, or strategy development, um, providing advice on various issues. So for me, it, it was originally a learning exercise so that I could see a wider horizon than just you know, the focus of the organisation that I was working for from nine to five. So, um, yeah, for me, it's been a professional development exercise. Um, And also, as I said, you know, wanting to leave something, so wanting to give back as well. I've been lucky with my career, um, and I found that with the not-for-profits, you know, there's an opportunity to give back. Because, you know, as as you would know, Patrick, not all boards are are paid roles. Of course, Um, yeah. Still um, are volunteers. Yeah, that's right. And once again, whether you're a volunteer or paid, Still same risk profile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. agreed. And in terms of your, your non-executive roles now, these mm-hmm. are the, the, the board positions, and there's been more than just the seven-year-old now. There's mm-hmm. been others that you've, yep. you've, you've stood down for, retired mm-hmm. from in, in, yep. in the course of your career. But um, I'm interested in understanding, you, you often find yourself chairing a capital committee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, for a good example, one of the organisations that, that, that I, I know that you're on is, is Bolton Clark, which is a very large um, and very successful aged care provider in in Australia, and it's a good example of you know that combination role that you enjoy, and mm. obviously you've been on that role for quite a number of years. So tell us about your views about um, you know I, I call it contemporary governance, but you know governance has evolved and mm. continues to evolve for not for profits. Yep. And and then the second part of that question is you know what what is important to being a good director. And also, you know, obviously you take this dual role at times of being a, a chair of a capital committee as mm-hmm. well. Um, I think we've seen, especially in the not-for-profit space, um, a shift to skill-based boards. Yes, um, definitely. When I first joined Bolton Clark, we were going... Or the old, it was, Bolton Clark was RSL Care. Yes. Um, it then merged with Royal District Nurses out of Victoria. Yes. And then uh, more recently... It took over Allity, which was um, owned by Archer Capital. So I think it's the number two largest um, aged care provider in yep. Australia. Incredible growth. Yeah, it? It, it's got about... Um, well, they said to me, I got some stats, they said they make 3.9 million client visits per annum <laughs> and their home support team travel 15.7 million kilometres a year. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a large organisation. Yeah. But when I joined it, they were going through a refresh program um, it was originally given the RSL background was you know, had ex diggers on the on the board, yes. and they were good and they were well meaning, but to grow the organisation, it needed a uh, a school based board. So you're seeing that um, regularly now with boards. Others, you need a combination of that lived experience. 
It's very right. important for, um, say, Deaf Connect, which I'm on the board of, which is the old Deaf Services in Queensland, which yes. merged with uh, the Deaf Society out of New South Wales. Wales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, we have a number of board members who are either deaf or hard of hearing. Yes. And they bring that lived experience, which is important to the organisation. But in, in terms of structures of boards and um, uh, recruiting new directors, one of the things that I've seen quite delivered quite successfully with committees is you want your committees to be like a centre of excellence. So, um, as I said, I chair a capital committee, but that's just because of my background, being able to work for construction companies and what have you. A way to bring in new board members as well as a refresh program, because boards aren't always good at doing that, yes. is to actually have a committee structure and invite or advertise for a new advisor to one of those committees. Ah. Bring the person on, let them understand the organisation via that, via that structure right. and then ultimately possibly they become a, take on a board role. But committee chairs, and you mentioned the, the capital committee, the chairs of committees tend to work really closely with, ma- with management more yes. so than just a straight board role because you know, board role you tend to turn up for meetings, you've read your yeah. papers. Whereas often um, in the committee roles, you're, you're providing that centre of excellence, something that they, somewhere that they can bounce ideas off. Um, and you develop with management, well, I have anyway over time, a, a mutual respect and trust. Yes. Uh, and that works well. Um, but your chairs need to be, a, I guess, what I'd call an expert in, uh, in their discipline. And having done you know, the, the AIDC course, I think, helps a lot of directors as well in terms of understanding their, their, their corporate responsibilities. A, a really good example of, um, of a committee chair where we've got a centre of excellence is um, the Clinical Governance Committee at Bolton Clark. Mm-hmm. That's chaired by Dr Cheryl Hurst. Oh, now, Cheryl's, you know, her, yeah, her no, credibility yeah, yeah. is imp- impeccable. What a uh, career. But yeah. what a good person to have yeah. chairing a, a, a clinical governance committee. Yeah. And that's the sort of calibre you need. Um, you don't want to put somebody in a in a pigeon, you know, in a, in a role if it's not their area of expertise. You you run too high risk. I like that that the committee being a centre of excellence for the organisation. Mm. I think that's a great uh, approach to take in terms of the demarcation of roles, responsibilities to subcommittees. Um, I, I like that. I, I want you to maybe just in in a couple of points talk about what you think makes a good director. And I picked up a couple of things from you mm-hmm. earlier. Obviously, preparation, you read those papers thoroughly when you get them. That's what I picked up. Mm -hmm. Would that be an example? Yeah, that's an example. Um, You've got to have an inquiring mind as well. Um, Just because something's written, there might be a whole lot of things that sit behind it. Yes. You've got to probably focus on the big issues. Um, Often you can find that boards will try to climb back down the management hole and you don't want that. You don't want boards delving into management issues. Um, but you've also you've got to provide stewardship for the organisation. You've got to be sort of planning, pushing, saying where you think the strategic plan is and working with management to, to put the flag on the hill. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a particular skill set though, isn't it? Mm. I mean, not everyone can bring that skill set to the table in, in my experience. And I think that's you know nicely summarised there that you know it's, it, it's working on an organisation but not in the organisation. That's, that's right. management's role. Um, and, and I see a lot of board and board directors, you know, wanting to know a lot of detail right down into the organisation. And maybe at times that might be appropriate, but, but that shouldn't be a default. No, it shouldn't. And look, I have seen it um, if a board feels that they're not getting 
the right answers or, yes. or, the, or a decision's being made on the run, you'll find, yep, they'll, they'll keep going back and back until they, they get that degree of comfort. But you don't want that to be the standard default position. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned before that you thought there's been a, a real progression of, of governance for mm-hmm. not-for-profits in the last 10 years, let's just broadly say. You know, where, where, you know, where would... Um, uh, you know, where do you see the future and what's sort of happening? Is it mm. is it more and more influence from the corporate and and the ASX company style of governance coming to not offer? What do you see the trends into the future? Look, I, I think you're right. There is going to be more more governance, more um, regulatory imposts yes. on the not for profits. But I think it's important that the not for profits don't lose sight of their mission. You know, what yes. their core purpose is. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think you're going to see more with is with the ACNC um, wanting to see what not-for-profits are doing with their cash and their capital and how they're actually reinvesting it back into mission. Um, I think well, you mentioned before about not-for-profits having lazy battle, yeah. um, balance sure. sheets. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, often you'll, you'll see some um, not-for-profits who are sitting on very, very large cash deposits. Yes, or properties that are, are not fully utilised. And I think the, the, I've seen a number of boards who actually now report. They, don't, they, they, they report to their board, but I think this will be requirement of um, with tax returns as well to actually report and put a dollar value on the charitable initiatives that you undertake. And I think that's going to be more and more of a requirement. I personally think it's good governance as well. Yeah. It makes you take stock to say, well, this is actually what I am giving back. I, I think um, the same compliance and government governance expectations will be imposed on not-for-profits that are imposed on for-profits. You, we will see that you know, things like you know, zero emissions and what have you are going to flow through to, to yeah. the not-for-profit sector. Definitely. and, and um, They're not yeah. immune. Of course, that's right. And... and uh, a lot of them are significantly funded, aren't they, mm. by government agencies, and so they want to see what's happening with those those funds, and they're delving more into the governance and guidance and leadership of those organisations. Now, I, I want to pick up. You obviously have had this thread of of property development and capital management over your entire career, and, mm. and that's been involved in in commercial and not for profit spaces. And what are some of the, you know example of projects that you've been involved in I'm sure there's many events just maybe some significant ones that come mm. to mind one from um, uh, that stands out in terms of an outcome that changed people's lives was uh, when I was at Brisbane housing I was involved with a um, the construction of a, a disability accommodation or special purpose uh-huh. uh, NDIS special specialist disability accommodation in Inogra, right behind the railway station. I know it, yeah, I've seen the pictures of it, yeah. Yeah. That's called Glenelva. Yeah. Um, That was life-changing for a number of the residents and their families that went in there. We had our arm wrestles with the government along the way as to what was SDA compliant and what wasn't in terms of residents. We took a hard view and, yeah, we won the battle. But, yeah, look, it was an absolute life-changer for a number of those residents and their families, and you know, they're, they're, they're super happy there. It, it's worked extremely well. Yes, it makes a commercial a, a return, um, but it was more the fact that by doing something that was purpose-built, it was you know, fit for purpose, but then in terms of the service provider, because we were then able to say, right, well, here's 
a whole tower that you can look after, albeit at 10 units, able to negotiate a better outcome for the residents as well. It works best for the service provider because they're not driving here, they're in everywhere. So everybody won. Good outcome. Uh, Just on that example, what's interesting is, obviously, I'm sure you well know more than anybody, that the housing crisis we're we're facing in Australia at present. And it's projects like that that really give me heart because we're not seeing enough investment from from government generally, state and federal. Um, That's not a criticism, it's just an observation. And we really need to see the the not-for-profit sector, the corporate spaces, the investors coming together and actually coming up with solutions like that. So, you know, I'm encouraged to hear that example. That's a good example. Um, Another one which was more financially driven, but once again a really interesting project, a tough project, was... um, the development of a crematorium at Nudgee Cemetery for oh, the yeah. Catholic Archdiocese. Oh, yes. After Vatican II, um, Catholics were allowed to be cremated. Yes. Um, under Queensland law, um, if you owned a plot in a cemetery, it's yours in perpetuity. Yes. But then there's still an obligation on the overall asset owner to maintain it. So using Nudgee as an example, um, once it's fully built out... Um, there's still the obligation still got to be maintained. Yeah. You know, there's priests buried there, there's nuns, there's the general public, and there's no income stream. So we did projections that show that in 60 years it was going to be totally built out with the gradual take-up of in-ground burials. So we went down the path, and my predecessor started at Desagami to um, seek approval to build a crematorium. It was a heck of a battle. Um, council, locals didn't want it. Even people within the diocese were really sceptical sceptical because it was a new business that they hadn't been in before probably took about eight years to get out of the ground ultimately Uh, it's been a huge success so what that does is that just gives that facility um perpetuity perpetuity absolutely yeah that that was a good outcome but it was a it was a tough battle with local council elections a whole myriad of different people pulling it every which way and misinformation um, you know, people think because they're near a crematorium that they're suddenly going to have kids with two heads and all that. There was a <laughs> lot of misinformation out there. It's It's been a terrific outcome. Yeah, it has. It's a great example. Well. Yep. Um, now, as I mentioned to you in our in our, in our pre-conversation, I, again, we work a lot with not-for-profit providers, and often they're totally fixated on the provision of services, whether it be in aged care, disability, housing, homelessness, DV and managing their government contracts, you know, the outputs, the client outcomes. Now, all very important, absolutely critical, absolutely agree. But, you know, my experience, you know, and well, your experience, I, I want to ask you in terms of how do we convince NFP leaders of the importance of utilising their capital base or securing their capital base and growing it to help sort of what I call fund the gap? Like often the service... Funding isn't going to cover everything they want to do as an organisation. They have to find other ways, and often that's through their balance sheet. So, you know, what have you learnt and what have you done in your experience? And look, often that crossroad doesn't happen until they get a large maintenance bill or something like that. (laughs) That's the reality jolt. You've suddenly got to re-roof a slate roof on a church or something like that. Um, Right. Look, often not-for-profits will view bricks and mortar as a means to an end. It's sort of the conduit to allow them to deliver their services. Yes, it's, yes. it's, a, it's a byproduct. You've got to have it. And, and, yeah. and it's something that can be sold if times get tough, sure. but they really don't focus on it. Um, and I guess, yeah, they, 
they need to structure it so it's not a burden um, and it ultimately can get to the point that you know, it possibly is income generating so that they can remove themselves from being totally reliant on the government funding yeah. and the pendulum that will exist. We, um, we did a project when I was at the diocese, it was a, a joint venture for want of a better word, a ground lease structure at a church called St Luke's in Buranda. Oh yes, I know it. And it was a wonderful outcome. We, we partnered with a group called Greengate, which has now been taken over, to build um, around the church perimeter um, a retirement village and also an aged care facility. The, the beauty was not only... The church still retains the land and it gave them capital to improve the church, but it suddenly gave them a, a, an increased parishioner base. Yeah. And they probably grew from, say, 60 parishioners attending Mass once a week to upwards of 120 to 150. It allowed the priest to go in and assist people with dying. Right and there on the doorstep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. everybody won. But, yeah, it's often not until you're suddenly faced with that big crossroad, declining parishioner base or a big property maintenance issue that will actually get people to start thinking about this. Often, if a spruker comes in through the door and starts trying to push not-for-profits, you'll see them sort of back off. They feel feel they're being shoehorned into a corner and often they just won't make decisions. So, yeah, they need to be taken on the journey or arrive at it themselves at... um, Um, suddenly a whole air conditioning system's got to be replaced and they can't afford it. I agree. Because remember, you know, a long time ago, um, not-for-profits weren't government-funded. They had to raise their own capital. Mm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. your town's a good example of that, isn't it? Your current current employer, um, where where they're very good at raising funds to deliver their social programs. Um, But a lot of providers have been now accustomed to that government funding mm. and, the, and the security of that funding, or albeit contractual um, cycles that they get, they go under. So, yeah, I, I think the, the this whole conversation around asset, asset management and is significantly important for their future. Look, they've, they've got to find alternate income streams yeah. to support their mission because, you know, mission by its very nature is often a lost leader. <laughs> and... Yeah. Um, yeah, you can't always be reliant on the government um, funding because the pendulum moves. Yeah, um, yeah. depending on who's in power. Correct. Um, so yeah, looking at assets or looking at alternate income, like your surf life saving and people like that with their art unions or therefore people like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, that allows them to do a lot of things and to support a lot of people that otherwise they couldn't do. Agreed. Agreed. Look, Stuart, I'm, I'm, I could talk about these subjects all day. They're of great interest to me and I'm sure to our listeners. But look, finally, um, you know, with your significant experience both in the corporate and the not-for-profit sectors, I'm really keen to hear about, you know, your, your vision for not-for-profits and their role in delivering these sort of mission-based social service mm-hmm. programs to support in the future. Where do you see that heading? Look, I think it's going to continue um, because they fulfil such a vital role in the community and the reality is the government can't fund all the services that not-for-profits provide, as I said. Yes, you know, they, 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 good they, A number of them have other funding initiatives to, to prop up their mission-based activities. Yeah. Um, I think with increased governance and compliance and also to for groups to speak with one voice... I think you're going to see some more mergers and alliances happen. Yeah. As I said before, you know, Deaf Services and Deaf Society yeah, is now Deaf example. Connect. Yeah. Uh, and Bolton Clark, good example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think there will be more mergers um, and they'll become larger organisations um, as the regulatory 
regime that we have to work within continues to to increase. That comes at a cost. Yes. Um, that a lot of you know, totally volunteer based organisations are not going to be able to to comply with. Um, I also think you know the ACNC is going to have a lot more uh, visibility as to what's going on with a number of the not-for-profits because there's, you know, there's a number of them sitting there with cash and not doing anything. So yeah. I think there'll be um, mergers because of either non-performance or the fact that um, they can see that by having a stronger voice, um, they can do better for their, the people that they're trying to help. Yeah, yeah, good. Stuart, thank you again. Lovely to chat with you. Great to, uh, to hear that, that story and uh, thank you so much for your time. Patrick, been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Stuart, and thanks to our podcast partner, Timor Awakening, for making this interview possible. Thanks also to Derek Tan and his team at Generator, our marketing and communication consultants, for producing this podcast. And thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed our 14th podcast. Join us again soon when we talk to another industry leader about the issues that shape our communities. Until next time, I'm Patrick Hurd. And this is Seen and Heard.